Hello, and welcome back to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. This is the Wednesday edition of the show. It is your host, as always, Nick Zararis, and we are here to unpack the Toronto Maple Leafs first round series loss to the Montreal Canadiens and as much excruciating detail as possible where I think the Leafs go from here what went wrong for them in this series specifically what recent history around the NHL tells us about teams that struggle to get out of the first round and a whole bunch more but before I get to today's show I do have to remind everyone to help grow the show There are a few different ways to help support. You can either subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. You can find this podcast on any of those platforms. If there is a podcasting platform you enjoy, you prefer, that is not one of the aforementioned ones, please let me know. I can upload the RSS feed to any podcasting site. Takes me two minutes. Help you join the show if you are using apple Podcasts, you have an added responsibility on the show's homepage. please scroll down to the bottom there are going to be five clear purple stars hit the one furthest to the right that's leaving a five-star review beneath that is a button with purple letters that says write a review if you have the time please leave a couple words of encouragement that stuff helps the show chart better on Apple's podcasting platform, more likely that other people will be able to find it and help join the conversation. Now, we unpack the Toronto Maple Leaf situation. I will set the scene a little bit before we get into today's main conversation. The Maple Leafs won the North Division by five points over the Edmonton Oilers. They produced the Rocket Richard winner, Austin Matthews, led the league in goals in the regular season. Their right winger, Mitch Marner, was fourth in the entire league in points this season. They also feature William Nylander, John Tavares, Morgan Riley, TJ Brody. They found a goaltender who could provide above-average goaltending for below-market value in Campbell. They had a very, very solid regular season. Sure, Some of that is a byproduct of playing in a weak North division where they were pretty much the only team to consistently produce well at 5-on-5 through the conventional underlying statistical numbers, whether it's Corsi, which is just scoring chances, Fenwick, unblocked scoring chances, expected goals, which assigns value to the the unblocked scoring chances they took based on a sliding scale of 0-1. to The more likely a shot is to result in a goal, the higher the value, the closer it'll be to one. That's based on historical shot tracking data. So if a shot went in from that location a number of years ago, that's how you get the rough estimate of the value. Of course, expected goals varies from website to website because all of those sites produce their model through slightly different means, but they're all going to be in the same general ballpark. And the underlying numbers told you the Leafs were a very strong possession team in the regular season, that they utilized a rushed-based offense, meaning that they scored within five, six seconds of the zone entry because they have such high-end players in their top six in particular that are able to carry the puck through the neutral zone with speed. They are a strong defensive team in the sense that their defensemen carry the puck out of the defensive zone, and their defensemen have a small role in the offensive zone. 
friend of the show, Jay Fresh Hockey, said a few weeks ago before the postseason started, the Leafs have the least active D in the NHL in the offensive zone in terms of the number of shot attempts they take. They don't ask their defensemen to do a lot in that zone. And after a number of years where the defense and the goaltending was the suspect issue in their first-round exit, this year against Montreal, they just didn't score enough. And yes, they suffered injuries to two key contributors. Number one, obviously, the center, their second-line center, their captain, John Tavares, who makes a ton of money, who played really well for them this year, drives his own line, is a competent two-way center, got another good year of production out of Zach Hyman for only $2.5 million. You bolstered your bottom six with guys like Wayne Simmons, with Joe Thornton, Jason Spezza. You have Pierre Engvall in the fold. You have Ilya Mikheyev in the fold. There's a lot of guys in that bottom six that were supposed to be able to hold their own in a best-of-seven series. And with the injury to Tavares, he suffered in game one where Corey Perry need him in the head, unintentional, what have you. They really had a hard time driving offense. They really couldn't find any secondary scoring. And because that top line of Matthews, Marner, and Zach Hyman wasn't able to score, the Leafs themselves weren't able to score. This is a series that hinges on a single goal or two. With that as your appetizer, I will see you guys in one second. Empty net, Tyler Toffoli scores, and it's 3-0 Montreal. And they'll punch their ticket to Winnipeg. And with that, we jump on into the discussion. And this discussion does not start with the results of the Game 7 on Monday night. This series discussion starts several years ago, where the Leafs have a weird in-between period where they don't produce... A ton of results. They have a lot of expensive, high-end players, guys like David Clarkson, guys like Phil Kessel, who are there, and they are not a particularly competitive group. They make the playoffs kind of unexpectedly in 2013 as out of that Atlantic division. They play the Bruins in the first round. They lose. 2012 is the year The year before that playoff, ra- that playoff ra- round one exit. They draft Morgan Riley fifth overall. He's the first building block of what you would call this iteration of the Toronto Maple Leafs. You think you find your franchise defenseman. You lose in the first round of Boston. You pick in the 20s. Following year, you pick eighth overall. You take William Nylander. 2015, you pick fourth overall. You take Mitch Marner. The year after that, you pick first overall. You take Austin Matthews. And that is your core. That is your foundational pieces. You figure you have your number one center, a first line wing, and another wing who can play in your top six with some offensive upside, and a puck-moving defenseman you can build your entire defense around. And that's your operating procedure. You're building around that group of guys, and you slowly but surely start building around them. You bring in outside pieces, you try and see what fits, you bring in some of your guys from within your own organization, you build them up, you have guys like Connor Brown, Kasperi Kapanen, who have decent runs with the Maple Leafs, guys like Zach Hyman, who's managed to stick it out, even though they've kind of been priced out of a lot of their own talent, had to trade them for cap relief, because the Leafs are a team that is up against the cap ceiling, but we're not at that point of the team build yet. The Leafs are playing the slow game here. 
They know they've invested four or five years into a genuine rebuild with Brendan Shanahan at the helm. Shanahan brings in Lou Limarillo to be the general manager. They're acquiring these young guys. They're trying to build up their confidence, grow them into high-end superstar players, which they all certifiably are now. Might be a little bit loose using that to describe Morgan Riley at this point in his career. He's a little bit older now, not as agile, not as adept defensively, but still a talented hockey player, someone with a considerable amount of upside in the right situation. But you think the Leafs have an upward trajectory. They make the playoffs. They lose to the Capitals in the first round. They push a Capitals team that's pretty talented to the brink, but Washington survives and beats them. You figure, okay, decent, decent. That's not a bad effort. But still, Toronto's young. They have the benefit of the future in front of them, and they know there's going to be growing pains. Every NHL franchise, no matter how talented the players it drafts, it knows that there are going to be growing pains, especially in the playoffs. Every single team that wins the Stanley Cup has at least one, if not two, traumatic series losses to a better opponent or to a worse opponent where they choke job it, and that's part of the learning process. Those younger guys do not have the experience to draw upon to know how to handle adversity. It's something I talked about a lot this season when it came to the Rangers and why they were so inconsistent. Young guys do not have experience to draw upon to frame themselves mentally. They allow themselves to get too high if the team is playing well, come out overconfident, and crap out. Or, if they have a particularly bad loss, it can linger from one game to another and cause a losing streak. It's how things snowball out of control. And this Leafs team is talented. It is very talented. And we haven't even gotten into the iteration of the team that says, all right, we've lost in the first round a few times, so let's bring in some let's bring in some rugged guys. They bring in a Matt Martin. They go out. They sigh. We need some veteran leadership for this young team. They bring in Patrick Marlowe, and you're paying Matt Martin and Patrick Marlowe $8 million to just kind of take up space in your bottom six to be mentors, to be protectors i use that word very loosely because you know we've kind of debunked on the show here that the enforcer actually deters anything people take runs at people all the time even when there are the thuggish type players the tom wilsons of the world on the ice the people who actually injure other people those people gonna take runs at other people no matter what even if matt martin's on the ice but you figure we need to give these young guys some leaders, some guys who have been there, who've made some playoff runs to kind of show them the way, show them what it means to be a professional, be a leader, that kind of thing. And they age out of that. This group raises their own price because they all play well. And it's a testament to how good of a job Toronto has done with their talent development. They've gotten a lot of production out of the guys they've either drafted or acquired early in their process and built up into certifiable players. You think about Kasperi Kapanen on the Penguins now, who had a really solid season for them in their top six. You think about the fact that Zach Hyman is probably going to double his salary when he reaches unrestricted free agency this summer, at least. He's only making $2.5 million as a top six winger, and as a type of player that NHL GMs covet, who play strong along the boards, who are good on the forecheck, who can create those greasy goals where they're going to be in the net mouth chasing rebounds and are difficult to play against not tough not gritty guys who are difficult to play against because they are good at hockey and know how to use their body to create space and room and have the added bonus of being really good puck retrievers for your superstars whatever the Leafs put Zach Hyman on a line 
they know he's going to do a great job of getting that puck below the goal line to a superstar. Whether he was with the Tavares line or with the Matthews line this year, Hyman did a great job of retrieving pucks and getting it to the more talented players and then getting himself in a position to make plays around the net mouth. It's a valuable skill set, and it's why Zach Hyman will get paid well this summer, either by Toronto if they can make a roster move to free up some cap space for him or by another team in free agency. I know I've seen the Rangers linked to him quite a bit as filling the void of toughness and grit, but I think it's more so that he just plays hockey in a difficult-to-play-against way. It's not that he's a particularly tough guy, a particularly big or strong guy. He knows how to use his body to create space and to create plays for his teammates. That's a valuable skill set. There are not a ton of guys who know how to do that. And that is a testament to the Maple Leafs' ability to develop talent. And I'll finish up this point about the Leafs building up guys internally through their pipeline, whether it's guys who played in the AHL for the Marlies under Sheldon Keefe before he became their head coach after they fired Mike Babcock. But the perfect encapsulation of why I think Toronto understands how to build their team is the two-month odyssey of Alex Kelchenyuk after he arrived in Toronto. This is a guy who's played for seven teams in five years now, who's been traded a bunch of times, who's kind of been labeled spoiled goods at this point, that he was kind of unsalvageable, and that anyone picking him up was purely getting a flyer based on talent that he used to have, and that his confidence was so shattered that he'd probably never be able to replicate any of the flashes of the player we saw in Montreal, where he was a genuinely exciting, young, talented player that I thought would go on to a pretty solid NHL career, suffered a few injuries, lost his confidence, the Canadians tried to ask him to do a little bit, a little bit too much. If you've ever read, if you've ever read Jack Hans, Hockey Tactics 2020 book, there's an entire chapter in that book dedicated to talking about what went wrong with Alex Gilchuniuk and the bad habits he developed from Montre- while playing in Montreal and how Jack himself, who was a developmental coach with the Maple Leafs, would go about rebuilding him. Of course, he wrote the book before Galchenyuk became a Maple Leaf this year. Jack no longer works for the organization, but Galchenyuk got put into a position to succeed. First of all, the Maple Leafs moved him back to wing, so less defensive responsibility, more focused on making him better at what he's already good at. Number two, they didn't just drop him in the lineup right away as soon as they claimed him off of waivers. They sent him to the taxi squad for a few weeks to help build up his confidence, to put him around other skilled players, because they know Gilchuniuk is a skilled player. This is a guy who has who had 30 goal potential once upon a time. And you know you're not going to be able to get anything out of him playing him on a third or fourth line, which he had kind of gotten relegated to in the last few years because he wasn't producing any offense at five on five. So the Leafs said, here's a guy we know once upon a time was able to do this. We know he's not going to be able to score 25, 30 goals for us now. But what can he do? He can be a situational top six forward depending on the opponent. If the game opens up and there's room for him, he can create offense. Now, I know there are people listening to this who are going to say he's the, the exact reason they lost game five because he was making a blind pass to the middle of the ice in overtime, which is a no-no. Anybody who's anybody always, always complains about the lack 
of risk-taking over time because teams don't want to lose. And I, I understand that. And obviously, you don't want to turn the puck over, create an odd man rush going the other way, and let the other team win. And I'm sure Galchenyuk is going to be maligned for that, and he rightfully should be. That is the direct causation for the Leafs losing that game. He turned his back to the play because he was facing the boards. He fired the pass towards the middle of the ice, assuming his defenseman was going to be in the middle of the ice to receive the pass. It wasn't. Caulfield and Nick Suzuki went the other way, and they created the offense. They scored a goal. They won the game. And in spite of that, I still think the Leafs know what they're doing when it comes to talent development, because you saw it. I'm not going to say Galchenyuk was amazing in the limited action he got this year, but he was noticeable in the offensive zone in the games he did play as a complimentary player when he was in the top six, whether it was with Tavares or with Matthews, and you saw the glimpses. I'm not saying Galchenyuk is fixed and that the Leafs need to feature him in a role going forward, but I do think they know what they're doing in terms of managing their talent. That's a solid baseline for the next part of this conversation, which is the assembly of the roster. Now, we talked about the guys they drafted. You draft Nylander, 8th overall. You draft Marner, 4th overall. You take Matthews, 1st overall. Morgan Riley, 5th overall. The dynamic of the Maple Leafs changes dramatically when you bring in John Tavares as a free agent. And I think... I mentioned this in the blog I wrote about this same topic that'll be going up on Gotham Sports Network today when you're listening to this if you want to read it a little bit more detailed. The Leafs were going in the right direction and they executed the basic NBA roster construction we see teams in the league use all the time. You draft well. You hope one or two of your young players hits well. Hits in the league, meaning they produce, they turn into a solid player. The Leafs got three stars, and all those guys, of course, are on entry-level contracts, so they're making below market value for their production. And then you get to that free agency. John Tavares is sitting there. You bring John home to live out his childhood dream, to wear his Toronto Maple Leafs pajamas. And that's when you tell the rest of the league, all right, we're ready to start competing for Stanley Cups now. We got our bona fide one-two punch down the middle in Matthews and Tavares. We've got two solid, solid borderline elite. I Actually, no, that's not even being fair. Marner is an elite player, and William Nylander is, if not elite, I'd say as close to elite as you can be. And then, of course, the problem in the salary cap sport, like the NHLs, is, is keeping all of these guys in-house. And the Leafs have had to tighten the belt at other points in their roster, and you get to where they are now, where you have four players making $39.5 million. When you add up the average annual value of Tavares, Marner, Matthews, and Nylander, you get $39.5 million, which is just a little bit less than half of the NHL salary cap. Then you add Morgan Riley, Jake Muzzin, and really, really quickly, you're at that $50 million mark, and suddenly you have $30 million to fill out a roster, which does not really work out mathematically when you need four defensemen 
eight forwards, and two goaltenders. The math ain't messing. I wrote about it in my blog today. You're looking at about, you know, $3 million per roster player, the rest of your roster, excluding your top four forwards and then your most expensive defenseman in Jake Muzzin. So that's not really realistic to build your roster around because, you know, for $2.5 million, you're talking about someone who's either an above-average fourth-line player, someone who's capable of creating offense in a grinded-out style, not going to produce a ton of goals and assists, but a competent two-way player that doesn't put up goody point totals. So they're going to be in your bottom six. So you're talking about guys on restricted free agent contracts who are your own homegrown talent, guys like Zach Hyman, who are only making $2.5 million, even though on the open market they could command probably a little bit more than double that. That is the Maple Leafs' problem. It is not that they have star players who did not produce well. Well, yes, that is a problem. I don't think it is the actual problem in Toronto. I know the easy answer that Toronto sports media, I know I listened to a little bit of Overdrive with Hayes, Noodles, and Jeff O'Neill on TSN, was, you know, you trade Nylander, you trade Marner, you create a little bit of cap flexibility, and you get in two or three guys for the price of that one or two. If it's Marner, you could get two quality players in for about $10.5 million. If it's Nylander, you could get one decent player. You could Maybe if you trade Nylander, you can keep Zach Hyman in the fold and you can bring along someone else in that bottom six role. But realistically, Toronto is set up to be a good hockey team. And I really, really hate to rain on the content machine parade here, the Leafs were fine. I know they didn't play a great Game 7, but, I mean, we're talking about a team missing its best, its second-best center in Tavares and its probably best two-way defenseman in Jake Muzzin. So I know that's making an excuse and that injuries are part of the postseason and that you're supposed to have depth. And I'll go as far as to say the Leafs made a mistake in their roster construction based on who they prioritized the trade deadline. I am not the first person to make this point, and I definitely won't be the last, but if the Maple Leafs trade for Taylor Hall instead of Nick Foligno, I'd almost bet, I'd almost guarantee they beat Montreal because they have a second line capable of creating offense. And while I think Nick Foligno had value as an elite defensive player with no offensive upside, I don't think defense and grit were the Leafs' problem. I think the problem is that when the game tightens up in the postseason, there is not as much room, and it is a lot harder to create offense off of the rush. Because there is littler... I know that's not really how I'm supposed to say it, but, you know, there's less space to operate in the neutral zone. It is a lot harder to carry speed that you would normally be carrying through the neutral zone when a team will drop guys back on their blue line. If you have to get through four guys every single time, it's a lot harder to carry through with speed. You more often have to dump the puck in, chase it, retrieve it, and get into a four-checking offense, which is something Toronto did not do as much. Now, that doesn't mean they're unable to do it. It just means that, you know, that's not their preferred way of playing, and... In the playoffs, where there is less space to operate, 
It is harder to create offense off of that rush, and you have to grind it out more. You have to be able to play the puck along the boards. You have to be able to incorporate your defensemen. you got to create chances from the points, whether it be deflections, second-chance opportunities off of rebounds, those greasy, ugly goals at the net front. The kind of goals you know that you expect from your fourth line, your third line, your not as highly skilled players. And this isn't a knock on those highly skilled guys because 100 times out of 100, if I have the option of having Austin Matthews carry the puck through the neutral zone with speed and be able to pass to Mitch Marner in a two-on-one situation, I'm going to want that every time over having one of them dump the puck in, retrieve the puck behind the net, and then try and get a four-check game going because one is a lot more efficient than the other. And I think, I know it's a lot easier for people to pin the blame on star players for not producing points at even strength, especially in the playoffs when you figure that it's going to be the responsibility of those high-end players to make the difference in a series where it's going to come down to a one or two goal difference over the course of a seven-game series, especially a series with multiple games that go to overtime. And... I know no one wants to hear me talk about shot share statistics in respect to the performance of the Leafs' top five, six guys, but I can't say that Marner, Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, Morgan Riley, etc. have played poorly during the team's first-round exits over the last five attempts because they haven't. When you play well... When you create more scoring chances, you create more dangerous scoring chances, you create more expected goals, over the course of that many outcomes, over the course of five playoff series, you would expect to get some luck to go your way because that's basic probability here. The reason the analytics community, the advanced stats community, whatever you would like to call us, believes in this methodology is it's easier to score the more you put the puck on the opponent's net. It's harder to score the fewer chances you have. The more chances you have at scoring, the more likely you are eventually going to score. That is the basic mindset you have to operate under when we're discussing this. Now, in the last five postseasons, Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares, Zach Hyman, and Morgan Riley have all been positive possession players. Some of them have really, really nice numbers. We're talking about guys, aside from Nylander and, Nylander and Tavares are a little bit different. Their numbers are a little bit closer to even than the others. But that's because typically the Leafs are matching up that Tavares line against the other team's best offensive line because Tavares has the reputation of being that preeminent two-way center that is capable of shutting down an opponent. So it's only natural his results would be a little bit less impressive. But we're talking about Matthews being nearly 50 unblocked scoring attempts better than even. We're talking about Hyman being about 15. We're talking Morgan Riley being almost 70 chances more to the positive. Mitch Marner, 48. And then the issue here. I really know a lot of people don't want to hear me talk about luck and variance and that kind of thing, but that is the underlying essence of hockey is weird things happen in small sample sizes, 
And over the long run, you get something resembling the truest form of valuation. In the course of an 82-game season, or in this case, this season, a 56-game season, you get an idea of what's real and what isn't based on production, because over that, we have an understanding of what a player's average or midpoint would be. And for the most part, we, we have a good understanding of who is actually good and who isn't, and we have a bunch of stats to quantify that, whether it's the conventional shot share ones, but I think the telling statistic here for the Maple Leafs in their struggle in these first round series is on-ice shooting percentage. Now, don't confuse this with just shooting percentage, which is a little bit different. On-ice shooting percentage is all of the shots a player is on the ice for and what percent of them result in goals. Normal shooting percentage is just the shots one particular player takes and what percent of them result in goals. On-ice shooting percentage is all of the scoring chances, all of the shots on goal they are on the ice for and the percent of them that go in. This is telling because it gives you an understanding of what kind of puck luck a player has. Now, we refer to shooting percentage, on-ice shooting percentage, save percentage as luck stats because, you know, once a player fires it at the net, a lot of shit can happen between the po- time the puck leaves a player's stick and it gets there. It can hit any number of things. The goalie cannot see it at all, and they get a free. The the shooter gets a freebie because the goaltender never saw the puck, and it's by them before they can react. All of those things go into that, and it's why you refer to things like save percentage and shooting percentage as puck luck because shit happens on the way to the net for a puck, and. When you look at the on-ice shooting percentages of these players, Matthews, 3.76, Mitch Marner, 3.85, Nylander, 6.92, better, 3.33 for Tavares, Zach Hyman, 5.59, a little bit better, and then Morgan Riley, 3.79, you get a clear picture that the Leafs aren't scoring at their normal clip in the postseason, and those numbers, those on-ice shooting percentages, are their last five postseasons, so that goes all the way back to their series against the Capitals that went to six games back in 2017. And that lets you know a few things. Number one, it lets you know that, A, they've either ran into a really good goaltender, which I'd say was the case in that series against Washington. I'd say was the case both times against the Bruins, because for as maligned as he is amongst a sect of the Bruins fan base, Tukarask is a top 10 goalie in the league. I say that with pretty pretty certain confidence of that. And I'd say the only series where they really kind of pooped the bed against a not great goaltender is the qualifying round series against the Blue Jackets. Elvis, Corpusalo, not not exactly, you know, Carey Price and Tuka Rask and Braden Holtby. Not exactly the elite superstar goaltender who played out of their minds. Don't get me wrong. Elvis and Corpusalo both played well in that series when they had to play, but, you know, neither of those guys has proven to be anything beyond that series, whereas Rask has a multi-year track record, at this point, Price is a little bit past his prime, but as evident by that first-round series, is capable of stealing a game or games. If you look at Evolving Wild's expected goals model, they have him pegged at saving 4.04 goals above expected, meaning that based on the historical data, 
where the Leafs took their shots from, their unblocked shots from in that series, the historical data would expect the Leafs to have four more goals. In a series where two games went to overtime and two of the other ones were one-goal games until the empty net goal, that tells you that they were robbed by a good goaltender. And, you know, that luck comes into play. I'm not saying the Leafs are losing these first-round series solely because of puck luck, because more goes into it than that. If they were really that dramatically outplaying their opposition, they would have found a way at some point in those five games. And I know that's counterintuitive to everything I always say about, you know, finding a way, wanting it more, all the cliches you hear on sports talk, whether it's radio or television. But at some point, you do expect your star player to be a star player. And when I say that, I mean, you expect them to break the play a little bit, to make a play that a player wouldn't normally be able to make because they have that extra talent that other ones don't. Austin Matthews has one of the best, if not the best, shots in the entire league. If you want to argue for Ovechkin, sure, that's fine. If you want to order, order, argue for Posternock, that's fine with me. But for my money, Matthews is right there in the discussion with those guys. So... Matthews, you would expect to have found the net more than once in a seven-game series. And I know Marner is the one who's kind of getting it a little bit worse right now because he didn't have a single goal in seven games this year, and he didn't score in any of the five games last year against Columbus, and he did not score in the game seven the year prior against Boston. 13-game streak without scoring a goal. For someone who's making as much money as as Marner is, that that looms for people and I'm not saying it's Marner's fault they lost I'm not saying it's any one player's fault it's not one player's fault it never is unless you have a goaltender who kind of explodes on themselves like Tristan Yari did for the Penguins but that's neither here nor there the point is Toronto is close Toronto has been close if you look at Dom Lachushin's model of the athletic if you look at his probabilities the chances the Maple Leafs would lose all five of these series is 1.4%. And that tells you it's statistically unlikely. It's not impossible. It's unlikely. Granted, that's why you play the games. Upsets. Underdogs can have chances. But it does tell you that they are playing well in the regular season. And that when things get tighter in the postseason, that's where they've had trouble. At 5-on-5 five five in the last five seasons, they have scored... 1.65 goals per game at 5 on 5. They've scored they've scored 53 goals in 32 games which averages out to 1.65 goals per game at 5 on 5 over the last 5 postseason runs. You compare that to teams like the Tampa Bay Lightning who have won a cup who are about 1.9 goals per game. The Islanders have only made the postseason the last three years, all the years under Barry Trotz, but they're checking in at about two goals per game at even strength. And yes, it's a smaller sample size, but, you know, we're, we're trying to give context here about what the issue is. And it's safe to say that Toronto's five-on-five production has been a problem. When the better teams are scoring close to two goals a game and you're checking in at one and a third goals per game, that might seem like a small detail, a small fraction, not a huge difference. But, you know, over the course of 53, excuse me, 32 playoff games, 
we're talking about maybe two more total goals over 32 games. That's not a ton more of difference. It's margins of error here. We're talking about teams. We're talking about different iterations of the Toronto Maple Leafs that have lost four game sevens. Excuse me. Yeah, four game sevens, including three game sevens and a game five, which was the last game of a series. So we're talking about playoff series here with very small margins of error where one more single goal in a best of seven series or in last year's case, a best of five series would have been the difference. And that would have been enough to win. And that's how small the margin of error is when you're talking about a postseason series because it's such a small sample. I do want to transition to the next part of this conversation, which is the obvious, which is where do the Maple Leafs go from here? Now, I'm pretty confident in saying that Zach Hyman will not be a Toronto Maple Leaf next year unless they make a significant roster adjustment somewhere else because his money's going to double. He's going to go from $2.5 million to $5 million. Nick Foligno is definitely gone. You ought to see if Joe Thornton... Wayne Simmons, Jason Spezza would like to come back at their reduced salaries. If they don't, you have to fill out your bottom six even more. You have to see what you're going to do on that back end. If you're going to bring Zach Bogosian back for another year to be your third-pair defenseman, you got to see if Rasmus Sandin is going to be ready to become your everyday third-pairing left defenseman to go opposite whoever you're going to play on that side. All of these things, those are your foundations. I don't think that trading one of your four key pieces is the answer. Number one, the Leafs' problem this year and last year against Columbus was not scoring enough goals. Well, there's two ways to approach that. Do you either A, try and optimize what you already have in place because you have such special players in Nylander, Erner, Matthews, and Tavares, or do you say, we just need more depth, that if we take out one guy who's high-end and put in two above-average guys in that place, can we get more goals from our second line and our third line, and maybe that's the difference in a best-of-seven series? Or do we think that slightly better play from our offense, being a little bit more optimized for the postseason and knowing how to play playoff hockey where you have less room to operate, you're not going to be able to orchestrate those cross-seam passes to high-end shooters. I think you're probably better off trying to get the most out of the group you have right now because you have a few problems. Number one, the salary cap is not going up for at least two more years. And Elliot Friedman of Sportsnet reported over the weekend it could be as long as five years before the salary cap increases from its current rate. And that's a problem. That is a very real problem. When the Leafs signed all these guys to these extensions, they were operating with a few things in mind. Number one, the salary cap would keep incrementally increasing that one, one and a half million dollars that it was doing pretty much every year, even though the NHL wasn't meeting its gross projections. It was still going up every year, even ever so smallly, and that makes a difference. And the more obvious one, the new TV deals go into place this season, this upcoming season, the 2021-2022 season, and the NHL tripled its TV money. It went from making about $200 million a year from the NBC deal to $600 million between Turner and ESPN. And that was supposed 
to jump the salary cap up at least $8 million per season this upcoming summer. Prior to the pandemic screwing up everybody's plans, there was a realistic possibility the NHL salary cap would be at least $90 million for the 2021-2022 season, if not more, if not even more than that. That's on the conservative end of things. And then these contracts aren't as gaudy. They are not as pricey. Think about it. If you're paying $39.5 million for four guys on an $81.5 million salary cap, which it is right now, or a $90-plus million salary cap, it becomes a lot more palatable, and you have a lot more room to operate around those guys. Now, you're looking at a salary cap of $81.5 million for at least two, if not five seasons, according to Elliot Friedman of Sportsnet. So, that means... You either, A, have to operate with these four guys making 50% of your cap, and you have to fill around the margins. You have to sign whatever it is. You have to fill out 12 forwards total. So you have your four forwards making $40 million. Then you need eight other forwards, six defensemen, and two goalies for the other $40.5 million. But you have TJ Brody at $5 million a year, and you have Morgan Riley at about $5.5 million a year. So real quickly, you're at $50 million. Now, Morgan Riley's a free agent after the 2021-2022 season. The Leafs have said they would like to keep him if possible, but I don't know how realistic that's going to be financially. But, you know, we're talking about a team, $50 million committed to six guys. you got to get 12 other skaters, a backup goalie for... <laughs> $30 million, and really quickly you realize how difficult the math is for the Leafs to fill out a competitive roster and why they're going to be dependent on veterans willing to take less money and players on entry level or restricted free agent contracts or guys off the bargain bin like an Alex Galchenyuk. And that is why I understand people who think the Leafs need to trade one of their star players to get more flexibility, to increase the organization's depth, especially in that bottom six where, yes, I know Jason Spezza was arguably the Leafs' second-best forward in this seven-game series. He had three goals in seven games. He gave them a really nice really nice amount of production this year in a limited role where he wasn't doing much aside from special teams work on the power play and a little bit five-on-five, but he was only playing 11, 12 minutes a night. Wayne Simmons didn't really give you a ton. I know he was hurt. He missed a number of games. Uh, Joe Thornton was okay in spurts, but did turn the puck a lot, turn the puck over a lot. And then you're talking about guys like Pierre Engvall, Ilya Mikheyev, you know, the, the energy guys. They're just out there to kind of throw their bodies around and see what they can make happen. Leafs need a little bit more help in that bottom six and... They're not going to be able to afford to pay a price for it, so it's going to have to be guys willing to take less money and and or trading someone. But, 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 I cannot in any good conscience say the Leafs need to trade any of their top four forwards in terms of salary because all of those guys have non-replicable skill sets. What I mean by that is, 
you traded one of those guys away, and you need to replace it with real production here. We're not talking about, you know, a restricted free agent who's coming up on term and needs a big contract. We're talking about bona fide stars who produce a ton of offense in the traditional counting stats. We're talking about a guy who's won the Rocket Richard, a guy who was fourth in scoring, Tavares, who's had 80, 90-point seasons, and Nylander, who's capable of putting up a 60, 70-point season in the right situation if you give him enough power play time. You're not finding guys like that out there in free agency, and if you're getting pieces back in a trade, you're hoping one of those guys could maybe turn into a facsimile B-minus version of one of the pieces you're trading for. Now, let's start with the obvious. Tavares is a no-trade clause, so that's a no-go, period. That leaves you with Marner, Nylander, and Matthews. You're not trading the guy who won the Rocket Richard Trophy because goal scoring is at a premium. He's a 40-goal guy in an 82-game season. You're not trading him. Then you get two, Marner, Nylander. Of the two... I think you could find a market for both. It would not be hard to find a trade for both. I don't think you find a winning trade for either player, which is the problem. I've written about this a number of times. I've talked about this on the show. I've talked about it on the show a number of times. It is really hard to win superstar trades in the NHL because you're getting pieces back hoping they might turn into something else. And this isn't like the NBA where you're going to get blown away by the sheer quantity of assets you get back in return. You're not going to get seven draft picks and roster players like the Oklahoma City Thunder did from the L.A. Clippers for Paul George. You're not going to get blown away here. You trade William Nylander, you might get one NHL player, two or three prospects, and a couple of draft picks, but you're not winning that trade. I always say this in... The NHL especially. You are not going to get fair market value for a superstar. Think about what Ryan O'Reilly, who is not as good as either Nylander or Marner, went for. He went for Tage Thompson, Vladimir Sabotka, and Patrick Berglund, and one draft pick. One of those guys, Tage Thompson, is still on the Sabres. Taylor Hall got traded for Anders Bjork in a second-round pick. You're not going to get good value, especially for someone like Marner or Nylander, who's not what the conventional hockey men want. They're undersized, they're speed, they're skill, they're finesse-based players. When all of the 200 hockey men are simultaneously grumbling to themselves about hockey is not how it used to be, and guys need to play north-south, be able to play the puck in the corners, get the puck to the net, and just see what happens. These guys, you're not going to get fair value for. You're going to get the mystery box. I reference this all of the damn time on the show, and it's a very real phenomena that plagues both fans and executives alike. You are trading a sure thing for something. I'll, I'll quickly revisit it. If you're not familiar, there's an episode of Family Guy where Peter and Lois get a solicitation to go to a timeshare presentation, and if you sit through the entire timeshare, you get a free boat. Peter and Lois sit through the presentation, Peter hurries the guy along, says, all right, we'll take the boat. And then the presenter of the timeshare says, well, you have a choice. You can either take the boat 
or the mystery box. And then Peter turns to Lois and says, we could take the mystery box. There could be anything in there, even a boat. And Lois says, well, maybe we should just take the sure thing. And and Peter cuts her off before he can finish. They open the mystery box and it's tickets to a comedy show. Not the boat. That is what Kyle Dubas would be doing if he were to trade Mitch Marner or William Nylander for trade offer number one, where he'd get draft picks, prospects, or roster players. You're hoping one of those guys can be what Nylander or Marner was. You're not getting Nylander or Marner back in a trade, even if it's a one-for-one type trade. Even if you did something ridiculous like William Nylander for, say, Brady Kachuk, the Senators wouldn't do that, first of all. Second of all, you're not getting what Nylander brings to the table back. You're not getting what Marner brings to the table back. These are dynamic high-end players. We're talking about people who are top probably 10 in Nylander's case. Marner's case, probably top five at their position. Mitch Marner is a top five right wing in the entire league. William Nylander is probably a top 10 or 15 right wing in the entire league. You're not getting someone in that bracket back in a trade. You're just not. We're talking about players in the ilk of a Taylor Hall, of a David Posternock. Now, maybe you say Hall and Posternock aren't fair comparisons. Those guys are a little bit more pure goal scorers than Nylander and Marner, who are a little bit more playmakers. Who do you want to compare them to? Mark Stone? Sure. I mean, Stone produces a ton of offense, and he's elite defensively. Neither Nylander or Marner is as elite defensively, but neither of those guys is going to give you a headache because they're so bad at defense. These aren't like the Mike Hoffman, Phil Kessel types who are just pure shooters. These guys are fine two-way hockey players, but have the highest of high-end upside. Marner finished fourth in the league in points in an abbreviated season, man. Let's not go throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Let's be reasonable individuals here. I know, I know, I know. You lose five first-round series in a row. The Leafs haven't won a first-round series since the 2004 lockout. I understand, I understand, I understand. Everybody's out there saying they got to change things up. they got to alter things. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say something very, very simple. The Leafs need to double down on the speed and skill game. I know that's not what people would expect me to say. I would They'd expect me to say they need to round up the team a little bit more, be able to play multiple styles, be able to play that high-low game. Nobody's telling the Colorado Avalanche that they need to play that way. <laughs> Nobody's telling the Lightning that they need to play a certain way. Those teams are just so talented, it doesn't matter how they play, that they're going to roll over most of the teams they play. I mean, we saw Carolina give Tampa Bay a decent fight in games one and two, but you never felt like Tampa Bay was ever going to lose out of those games. And you talk about Colorado. Most people thought Vegas would be the toughest opponent Colorado could have, especially this early. And they steamrolled 
Vegas. Seven to one. We're talking about a Vegas team that's pretty damn good defensively, that has high-end players that, in theory, should be able to shut down or at least match what you're getting out of that that um, McKinnon, Landeskog, Rantanen line, where you match them up with Stone, Pacioretty, and Chandler Stevenson, and you figure, all right, they're going to score, but we should be able to score with them because we're so imposing. We're especially good defensively, a guy like Stone, and that's just not the case. At least after one game. There's time for that series to change, for the outcomes to alter, for Vegas to get in the mix and to slow things down, but nobody's telling the Colorado Avalanche they need to get grittier and need to play a more well-rounded physical game because they don't need to because they have so much talent up and down their lineup. And yes, it helps that Colorado star players are making a lot less money and that they get such impactful contributions from their defense, which is another part of this conversation, but not something I wanted to do delve too deeply into until I had a Maple Leafs expert on to talk about it with them. But the Leafs didn't get much from their back end in terms of production, and they weren't expected to. The offense was centered around the forwards driving play and the defenseman just not getting killed on odd man rushes going the other way and that kind of thing. So I'll I'll leave you guys with this thought. The Maple Leafs problem in this series against the Canadians and last year against Columbus was not scoring enough goals. Even though they were creating the chances, they were creating dangerous chances, they were getting to good areas, they could not score. This taking away proven offensive play drivers like Nylander, Marner, or Matthews makes sense on a team that had a hard time scoring? No. No, it doesn't. Do I think the Leafs need to put a priority on depth offense, getting a little bit more production out of their bottom six and maybe some of their defensemen? Yes. I think in an ideal world, you find a way to bolster your bottom six with some flyers or some in-house project players and you improve around what you already have because what you already have is pretty damn good. All of that said, that's about all the time I have for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed today's discussion about the Maple Leafs. We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk a little bit more hockey. We'll probably delve a little bit into the other series that are going on in the second round. We'll bounce around, talk about the takeaways I have early on, talk a little bit about why I think Carolina might have fooled me during the regular season and how they could maybe have a chance against Tampa. We'll talk a little bit about the Winnipeg-Montreal series that's upcoming. We'll talk about adjustments that Vegas makes against Colorado. A whole lot going on in the hockey world, and I haven't even touched basketball or baseball or football or racing in a number of weeks. I know, we got to round out, but hockey's what I know the best. These playoffs have been better than usual. We've already had 15 games reach overtime, so lots and lots to talk about. Be sure to check out the blog on Gotham Sports Network. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow.